Good morning. How's everybody doing? Well, welcome to LifePoint again. Welcome to the eighth week of a series we're calling Faith Works, where we're looking at a specific book in the New Testament called the book of James. There's some interesting facts about the book of James. If you're here for the first time, there's a couple things you ought to know. James is the, the, the oldest book in the New Testament written closest to the events that took place. James is written by a guy named, guess what his name was? James. And James was the little brother of Jesus Christ, so he would have had the benefit of being around Jesus his whole life. And so later on, after he trusts in Jesus, not just as his brother, but as his savior, he becomes a leader in the church and he writes down to recently converted Jews who accepted the message of Christ, he writes down a bunch of practical teaching that helps them apply their faith on a day-to-day basis, because the basic premise of James's book is this faith we have in Jesus Christ should affect the way we live day to day. It should change us. It should have some kind of impact on us. So when you open up the book of James and you start to read, you get some of the most practical teaching that's anywhere in the New Testament about how your faith should be lived out on a day to day basis. So the very heart of his book says that following Jesus should make an impact on your life. If you went up to someone who just had gotten married and you said, hey, you just got married, how's it changed your life? Well, you know, little. I'm still thinking about dating around a little bit, maybe dating some other people. You'd be like, wait, I thought marriage was supposed to change the way you view stuff like that. Or if you met up with someone who just had a baby and you said, how's it going? That's all right, you know, we're still sleeping eight, ten hours a night. Uh, We're never getting woken up and, you know, things are just the same. They're really smooth. You'd be like, are you kidding me? When you have a baby, it turns your life upside down and everything changes. And that's what James is saying about our faith, that it should have an impact on our day-to-day life. It should have an impact on the way we handle trials when they come into our lives. It should have an impact on the way we treat other people, especially those who are less fortunate than us. Our faith should have an impact on the way we spend our money, on the way we use our tongues, on the way we make decisions. Our faith should have an impact on every single thing that happens in our lives. In the section of his book we're going to look at today, James lets us know that following Jesus should also change the way we think about the future. I'm going to be reading from James chapter 4. There's some Bibles going around that look like this. If you don't have one, just take one. Uh, It's yours to keep. If you need a Bible, if you'd just like to read along in there, you can. Or you can also look on the screen. Just raise your hand. The ushers will give you one. If you'd like to just use it, you can drop it off on the way out or take it home with you. I'm going to read from page 838, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. It says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. James is primarily speaking to some Christian businessmen who were, you know, kind of trying to manipulate what was going to happen in the future, making plans to make a profit. Now, James is not bashing on planners. He's bashing the way they were doing the planning. 
James is not bashing on profit because this extends into people who aren't business people. It extends to all of us who make plans, all of us who think something might happen tomorrow. He's talking about just planning in general. Any controllers here today? How about anybody with a controller? That's probably the best way to say it. Are you with somebody that's a controller? And as you're nudging and laughing and thinking of how they control, well, James is getting ready to come down really hard on people who are controllers. And he says some things in those verses that he's hoping it helps us get a new perspective on life, get a new perspective about how we look to tomorrow, and kind of let what he says sink in and change the way we look into the future. Now, I know there's planners and controllers in the audience. I've met some of you. You know, you, you want everything just right, everything just perfect. And, and, and James is really going to come down hard. And so if you're a carefree person, you're probably going, finally. You're going to let the people have it that, that plan, and, you know, the regular people. James is not coming down on personality styles because even those of us who aren't the greatest planners about details in the future, James says, look, even you've got hopes and dreams. If you're the most disorganized, unplanned person, you still have hopes and dreams for tomorrow. And that's what James is talking about. Not personality styles, but people who have hopes and dreams for the future like we all do. And he says, look, if you're planning on going over here and doing this or that, I've got a few things to say to you. And in verse 14, he says, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, that's James' encouragement for the day. He's saying, let that sink in. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're just a mist that's here for a little while and then you go away. So... In this short verse, he's telling us a couple things. One, I cannot control tomorrow. I have tried to control what happens tomorrow. And I'm horrible at it. The first career I remember that I was like, I got to do this, was, was being a DJ. I thought, man, that is cool. That would be great to be a DJ. I don't know where it came from. Nobody in my family's a DJ. Nothing like that. I just thought I'm going to be a DJ. Well, I didn't wind up being a DJ. I, I, I did a horrible job playing for tomorrow. Most college freshmen will change their majors four times. Four times. So you really can't control what goes on tomorrow. And James is trying to tell us that. A few years ago, if you sat in a mortgage banker's office, he would say, here's what you need to do. You need to get all the house you can possibly afford. You need to push, 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 stretch, stretch, stretch. Get up there because, man, this is just going to keep going up. And we're just, you're going to make a profit. And this will be your retirement. That's what this house will be. So just stretch all you can afford because it's like savings in the bank, man. Savings in the bank. Now what happened? People who are now sitting on things they can't afford because they couldn't see tomorrow. Because they couldn't control what happened tomorrow. People who have lost 60% or more of their retirement because they couldn't see what was going to happen tomorrow. So James wants to make it clear, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, period. But he's telling them, you're living like you do. Like you can control what happens. Tomorrow is so unpredictable, you could, you could hit the lottery or get hit by a bus. You could, you could find someone, the person of your dreams, and fall in love and life be great. Or the person you thought was, was the person you spend the rest of your life with could leave you and take half of everything you own. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
And James is talking to those who are trying to control their future and not factoring God into the equation. And then he says, hey, if it doesn't hit you that you can't control tomorrow, let me, let, let me put it this way. You're only here for a little while. He calls us a mist. In the original language, Greek, which James would have been written in, it's translated like this. Instead of saying, what is your life? It would say, what sort is your life? What condition is your life in? And he's saying, think about that. Take stock and think about your life. Now, some people really hate to do that. Many people don't like to look deep inside and take stock and see, let's just evaluate our lives. Let's just see what it might look like. Let's look at our lives from another perspective. Many people don't like to do that. Our culture doesn't like to do that. So what do people do? They fill their lives with busyness, with things, with success, with everything you possibly fill your life with. So you don't have to look at those things and realize what sort your life is or the condition of your life. You can live your whole life. And I've talked to people who are 60s, 70s, and they're like, gosh, I wish I would have thought about this spiritual stuff earlier in life. So you can live your whole life packing it with other stuff and get way down the road and realize my life is really out of sorts. So James is trying to say, what's your life? Think about it. Look about it from a different perspective. Your life's just a, just a mist. And if it's any indication, you know, when you're in your 20s and life is great and, and your body feels wonderful and, and everything is perfect and, and, and losing 10 pounds, you just have to think it and it happens. You know, it's just really easy. And then along about mid-30s to, to, to early 40s, you start to pick up something with print like this and you're like, like a second ago, I was like, whoa, dang, that's a little bit smaller than it was last time I picked it up. Or, or you wake up and it's like, oh, oh, it's just, it's a signal. It's God signaling you. Life is temporary. And you have to do everything you can to take care of your body. But in the end, you're going to lose. I mean, stay, isn't that encouraging? You feel really good today. <laughs> but it's true. In the end, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. Take care of it all you can in every minute you can. But in the end, James is saying, you are just temporary. Have you ever noticed how as you age, time seems to go a lot faster? If you tell a two-year-old to sit in a chair for five minutes, you might as well say five years because they don't get it. They don't get the time. And, and I'm looking at the calendar, and I'm realizing in about five years, Cinda and I will be empty nesters. Our sweet little Abby will be graduating from high school five years from now. And to me, I'm like, okay, we got this many summers, so what are the things that I want to get accomplished? I didn't in the previous 13, and so we got to get to work. To her, five years is probably like, oh, gosh, Dad, that's forever. But to me, it's just like that. Time changes as we get older. And James is saying you need to get a perspective because the death rate is still one per person. It's, you know, it's 100%. It's, it's been there forever. So we, we have to think about, okay, our life is not permanent. It's temporary, and James is saying, let it sink in. And you might think, well, that's morbid. I came to church today, and you said, hey, think about death. Enjoy your week. <laughs> but that's what James is saying. 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote down a set of personal resolutions. And number nine of his personal resolutions was this. He said, 
I resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend to my death. Why, why would you do that? Well, maybe it gives you a different perspective. My grandfather died in his mid-80s, or yeah, mid-80s in 1999. And at my mom's house are many of his old books and belongings. He was, he was a minister. He preached at one church for 52 years, and, and he never quite knew that I listened to him because I you know, kind of developed spiritually much later in life after he had kind of lost it uh, mentally. And so I, I go through his, some of his old journals that they're in, in one of my mom's drawers, and I'm looking, and I'm reading through his journal, and he's talking about, this was written in 1967, the year I was born, so 44, so you don't have to sit there in 67. But so he's writing, in the spring of 1967, he's planning his funeral, and he's saying what he wants at his funeral, and the songs he wants, the prayer, what to do with his body, what funeral home, church building, all this stuff he's saying that he wants at his funeral, and I'm just reading it going, well, I guess that's kind of cool to kind of plan that out, make it easier for everybody. And then I realized I start adding up. He was in his mid-50s when he wrote that down. And I thought, gosh, was my grandfather depressed or, or had this fixation on death? And, and then I keep reading through his journals. And a few years later, he's talking about it again. And I, I just, I closed that. And I, I remember driving home and just thinking, wow, that was, that was weird. Maybe he was depressed. Maybe, maybe he was dealing with something nobody knew about. But I'm preparing for this message, and I read that Jonathan Edwards quote, and I think, well, maybe my grandfather was just trying to keep perspective on life, that it really doesn't last forever. And if you think about that in a culture that says, don't think about it, it's going to last forever, we're going to fix it up, tape it up, cut it up, lift it up, whatever we got to do, and it's going to last it's not popular to think about death, but James is saying, think about it for a minute. What is your life? What sort is your life? Think about it. It's a mist that just is here for a little while. Have you ever noticed what, is, what was very popular 100 or so years ago to put right beside of a church building? What was it? Cemeteries. And people make jokes about it, you know, and I'm not going to do that, but people make jokes about cemeteries being about church buildings, but in early Puritan culture, when they came in the United States, they put church buildings and cemeteries together on the same plot of land in the center of town because they wanted people to recognize two things as they were going about their business. They wanted them to recognize God, and so there's the church building. It represented God. Think about God. And there's the cemetery. They wanted people to think about death. And they wanted that to impact the way people conducted their day-to-day -day business. It helps you to get perspective. A year ago this week, I spent a week at a, at a retreat, spiritual retreat center. I was just feeling a little spiritually dry, so I go down to the swamps of Louisiana to my friend who has a spiritual retreat center, and I was there for several days. And, and one of the days, he said, you should just go for a walk and just pray. Now, he probably knew where this road would take me, but he didn't tell me this. So he said, go for a walk. So for like two miles, I'm walking in 100-degree backwoods swamp, Louisiana, humidity, and I come up on this little Catholic church. And right beside the Catholic church is the cemetery, and I sit on the, I try to open the door, it's not open, so I sit on the steps and I pray for a while, and then I walk around and I start walking through the cemetery. And the cemeteries in Louisiana are different, they're not just tombstones, they're like everybody's above the ground because of the water table and you can't bury people, so it's like these big vaults above the ground, and I'm just walking, I'm reading on the end of every one of them, like the dates, and, and I remember thinking, wow, that's pretty short. Even if somebody made it 80, 90 years 
when you write it down on a, when you etch it in stone, it looks like a mist. It's just there and then it's gone. And I remember just looking at name after name and then, oh, that was a child. Oh, that person made it to 90 years old. And it really helped me to gain some perspective. And that's all James is trying to do in these verses that aren't real popular for people to digest because it really makes you stop and gain perspective. Because the fact is, all of our lives are temporary. And James is saying, let that sink in. He's trying to rattle our cages a little bit. And the people he was talking to, just get them to think differently about the future because... Following Jesus should change the way I think about the future. So he says, you're planning all this. Why do you do that? Because, hey, your life's temporary and you can't even control tomorrow. And in verse 15 he says, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. It was very common in Greek culture to say, if it is the God's will, little g, plural, If it's the God's will. So James takes one of the culture's statements and he changes a little bit. He doesn't say if it's the God's will. He said if it's the Lord's will. So people would have perked up and said, wait, he said that a little bit different. If it's the Lord's will. It's it's more than semantics. It's more than just the words he's using. It's, It's about attitude. It's about perspective. And it really sounds like a cliche to say God's in control. God's in control. That's a code word sometimes. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's next. God's in control. Or I really messed up bad. God's in control. And James is trying to say, you think you're in control, but you're not. There was a time in, in Israel's history, which the people who received James's letter would have known about because they were Jewish people. And, and there was a time in their history when they finally got to the promised land and or getting ready to go to the promised land. And God's warning them because he knows they're going to be blessed. He knows they're going to have money. He knows they're going to be successful. And God is saying, don't forget me because you'll be tempted to forget me and factor me into your life when you get this success. And he's talking about money. And he says, don't forget that it's the Lord who gives you the ability to produce the wealth that they were getting ready to enjoy. And all James is doing is saying, hey, you need to factor God in. You need to get a different perspective and see that God controls tomorrow. So is he saying never plan? Of course not. What he's saying is make plans, but you got to be flexible because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Of course, plan for the future. Of course, plan for retirement. Of course, make solid financial and relational and spiritual plans. But you've got to be flexible because you're a finite being and you, you don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow. So be flexible with your plans. James is saying get the hope out of tomorrow and put the hope into the Lord. Put the hope into Christ. We need to all write something down. You need to make a little note. I've done this before. And you need to write a resignation letter as president of the universe. Just write, I resign as president of the universe. I mean, I, I'm so glad I'm not in control. Now, there are times and there are days that I feel like I am in control. But then when I look at the past, like you should look to your past and say, well, how, how many times was I not in control? And I thought it was going to go one way and it went another just in the story of our church, I can remember on a Sunday morning looking at my wife and saying, nobody's coming back. 
It's going to be you and me and those few people, you know, we're tight with, they'll stick with us through thick and thin, but that's it. So are like five people. We could just cancel the lease and have church in the living room. That's what's going to happen. I know it. I know, and I really knew it, and I was sure that's what was going to happen. If I had had money to bet, I would have said, this is, I'll wager on this because I'm going to make some cash. I'm going to need it. But that's not what happened. And there have been a couple times in the history of our church, I thought, oh, well, people, why would they come back to that? Why would they come back? I'm an idiot. Why would people come back? And, and God works, and it was the Lord's will that people come back. It was the Lord's will that lives be impacted. And it's the same thing for you. You may be looking at a situation thinking, no way. How in the world? We can't get through it. And James says, look, you need, you need to remember this principle that you can't control tomorrow, that your life is temporary, but the Lord's will will prevail. That's what we have to remember. And you might think, wait, you mean it's the Lord's will that I get sick? It's the Lord's will that relationships end? It's the Lord's will that it's the Lord's will that somebody hurts me? It's the Lord's will that the doctor gives me a bad report? No, those things aren't the Lord's will. The Lord's will is that we trust him with tomorrow. People all the time, Donnie, how do I know what God's will is? How do I know if he wants to move here or here or here? It's not about that. God's will is that you trust him with whatever's coming tomorrow. And when you do that, then you'll be able to approach tomorrow without worry, without anxiety, and with peace. It all comes down to trust. And trust is so hard for some people because trust means I've got to give up some control. Trust means that that I'm going to have to release some of the, the control to someone else, God in this case. In the book, The Faith of the American Soldier, the author of this book interviews all these soldiers on the battlefield. He goes to the battlefield and he's interviewing soldiers and, and he makes some comments about one particular soldier as he's trying to show the faith that these soldiers have and having to do things that people should never have to do. And, and he writes about triumphs and tragedies and people with great faith and people with no faith. And there's this one story in the book about a guy named Darren McKay. This is how he describes him. Thickly muscled and plastered with tattoos, McKay is a smaller, meaner-looking version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. If the artwork needled into his skin is any guide, he spent his life among the bad and the bold, answering his thirst for women in danger. His credo adorns his left arm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for I am the baddest warrior in the valley. McKay tells everyone who will listen that he is in Iraq because when the going gets tough, the tough go Marine. He joined up after high school in Los Angeles because he wanted to experience fear factor on stun. Nicknamed Sparky by the other men of the platoon because he's short and squat like a spark plug, McKay often sees his life a, McKay sees life as a series of challenges to his personal toughness. He doesn't fight for the nation or for ideals because he suspects that the politicians who sent him to Iraq are no less corrupt than the dealers on the streets of L.A. and he doesn't care. He's here to prove himself and to return home as a person as bad as any mother's son who ever walked the earth. Quote. McKay's only real friend is a black kid the men call Dogman. He's the cool that everyone wants to be. A grooving, laughing, tough from the streets of Detroit who is as good a Marine as any man in the platoon. And for some reason, no one can explain, McKay loves him. 
Perhaps their friendship started when Dogman showed he wasn't afraid of McKay, or perhaps it happened when McKay was in a bad mood in the barracks and Dogman pulled him up for an outcast dance anyway. McKay couldn't keep his mat on, and everyone shouted rowdy cheers as the two did their dances. Something started that night, and everyone knows McKay and Dogman are tight. That McKay would kill a man who messed with that skinny, smiling black kid. Then it happened. One night, McKay and Dogman were keeping an eye on the entrance to a house with five other Marines, while a second squad entered from the rear. The night was quiet. Men joked and cussed and smoked and never took their eyes from the gated entrance to the house across the street. Dogman was just a few feet behind McKay and was yelling how stupid white boys from L.A. are when the mortar round hit. It landed behind Dogman and nearly vaporized him, spraying now the unrecognizable matter all over McKay. It's a week later now. I'm interviewing McKay, and he's slumped over a coffee at the camp, watering hole. The fire and anger are gone from his chiseled face. He grieves for his friend, but there's something more. Death, which has always seemed at bay from this strong, arrogant life, is now close as his breath is. He will end someday, somehow, it'll end. Just as Dogman left this life, so will McKay, and he knows it now. This body he has worked so hard to craft, this persona he has come to love so much, it will end, and he says, probably in a bloody crush here in Iraq. Death is asking Darren McKay who he is and what he believes, but he doesn't know. Dogman was the best of us, McKay said, refusing to tear, and he went on and on. I'll probably die here too, but I wish I knew something about what's on the other side. I wish I believed something or I had done something that makes it all worthwhile. I hate the thought of dying, but I hate the thought of dying empty most of all. And James is talking to these people who are trying to control their environment and trying to control what's going on in their life. And he's saying, you are going to die empty if you don't realize you're just here. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow and you're just here for a little while. So instead of trying to control your tomorrow, instead of trying to live forever, just trust God with whatever's going to happen tomorrow. Just have faith that someone with much more power than you has gotten tomorrow completely under control. See, when I trust in Jesus, it should change the way I think about the future. Let's pray. God, thank you for these challenging words from James that, that convict us, that make us think. And God, may they help us get some perspective on life as we plan for tomorrow, think about tomorrow, and, and think about what's next. And Father, for the person that's here today dealing with difficult things in their life, wondering where you are, wondering why they can't feel you, God, I pray that you would just give them that that extra measure of courage that they could just look into tomorrow and trust you completely with it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.